I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Krishnadas Pilgrim Heart Hour. In this podcast, Krishnadas shares his warm-hearted and down-to-earth path to the divine. If you are interested in supporting Krishnadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/kd. So, let's have a chat. Uh, Skype chat. Anybody have any questions or anything you want to talk about? There's a microphone. will be brought to you. <clears throat> I think. We're good. Okay. Whoa. Yes, hi. Hi. 
I was here two years ago for the uh, Katie Sharon show, uh-huh. and um, I had Until never... we lost our, our commercial advertisers. <laughs> I had never um, been introduced to the Hanuman Chalisa before, and um, I just, uh, I, I chanted every morning now, I've become a, a Hanuman junkie. Um, it's called devotee. <laughs> I, I just, <clears throat> same thing. Just kidding. Uh, um, my wife wants me to go to Hanuman Anonymous groups. Uh, uh-huh. I'm, I just, I, I'm the president of that club. <laughs> great. I love chanting, and it just makes me feel all-powerful. And I see. When I go, when, <laughs> when difficulties arise in my life, if I just chant it more, I can seem to deal with them. And to top it off, um, Neem Karoli Baba comes into my room when I chant it. Uh-huh. So it's just That's wonderful. That's where he goes. <laughs> so, I always wonder where he's always, he, every once in a while he just splits. I just wonder where he goes. So, so I'd love to have you just chat a little bit about the power of the Hanuman Chalisa and also how you integrate chanting and meditating. Okay, well, you know, Hanuman is, 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 uh, uh, is that, you could say that, that Hanuman is that part of us that's always turned within towards reality, towards the truth. And so, obviously, when we, when we tune ourselves to that or move in that direction, the things that push us around on the outside lose some power because we're no longer completely invested in fighting with those things from the same level that they exist on. As soon as you let go <clears throat> of a lot of the emotion around a lot of issues, it gets easier to deal with them. And how do you let go of those conflicting negative emotions is by releasing and just coming, you know, moving towards your own heart. And Hanuman is that flow into the heart, uh, you could say, among a million other things you could say. Uh, And so that's why he's called the destroyer of, of calamities, the remover of suffering, because when we tune ourselves to that or when we invoke, you could say, if you want to say it that way, you could also say when we invoke that presence, that being, then we're taking energy away from our stuff and bringing it into our deeper being, which then can deal with that stuff on a different, in a different way. You know, the temple now that I lived in with Maharaji, one of the temples, is called the Sri... It had a, an archway over the, the stairs that led across the bridge into the temple. And they had to redo the bridge some years ago. And when they redid the bridge, they redid the archway. And they named, they wrote on the archway, the Sri Neem Kuroli Baba Temple and Ashram, something like that. 
But that's not what Maharaji named it. That's not what the archway said when he had it originally built. It said the Sri Advait Sankatamochan Hanuman Mandir. Advait means non-dual. The non-dual destroyer of suffering, Hanuman. See, Hanuman is a being who not only functions fully in this world, but also knows himself to be one with God completely. And at the same time, he, kn- he understands the oneness, or the, as Maharaji used to say, all one, that one. He's become that, and yet he functions here as well. And because of that uh, being rooted in the ultimate truth, any, uh, any issues that come up in this world are easily destroyed when we tune to that place within us. There's a, you know, for me to talk about Hanuman is like asking a kindergartner to talk about nuclear physics. You know, I only know a little bit of this, you know, the little bit I've been exposed to, but the main thing that I have to say that the only way I have any feeling for Hanumanji at all is because of being with Maharaji and also coming coming to understand that Maharaji's devotees, for the most part, worshipped him as a form of Hanuman, an incarnation of Hanuman. And Maharaji would often, you know, in a way turn into Hanuman. We would see him do things and there was a, a whole kind of lila or play around that where so, and Maharaj was the same way. He was rooted in ultimate reality, become one with the whole universe. And yet, he was very busy in this world, helping people all the time. That's what Hanuman does also. So it was through being with Maharaj and seeing how he is that I got a little taste of, you know. And then again, Maharaj was always repeating silently under, under his breath the name of Ram, what, no matter what he was doing. That, the, that name was always going on within him. Now, we would, if we were repeating these names like we are, we're in a sense trying to get somewhere, trying to recognize something or realize something. When Maharaji was repeating that he was repeating that name so he could stay here with us for our sake. Because these great beings have no personal agendas. They only maintain a body out of compassion for us, to help us and show us what's possible. It's inconceivable to us what it means not to have a personal agenda, because everything we do is about me, all of us, most of the time, even in subtle ways, even when we meditate. You know, I'm going to be on this. I'm going to meditate my ass right to enlightenment. You know? So it, it, it's subtle and not so subtle, you know, but it's okay. That's, that's positive, helpful, healthy ego, you could say. But there are beings that, that have transcended that whole thing. And of course, Hanumanji is, is that. So... And the Hanuman Chalisa was given to us by Maharaji 
as a way of accessing that presence or that, that, that feeling or that being that is Hanuman. And when, once again, what is Hanuman? It's that, you could say, it's that part of us that is never disconnected from our true reality, our true being, that we forget all the time. We're always looking outside. We're always looking for happiness and love outside. We're always outer-directed, lost in the sensory input or the thoughts that pass through our awareness. So as we turn away from that and, and move deeper within, that's the, so the, the chalisa is one of the ways that, that I do that. And that was given to us, to the Westerners in those days by Maharaji, in the old days. Okay? Okay. Neem Karoli Baba. Kijay. Can you tell us anything about his Gurudev, his path to realization? Was there a... You know, nobody knows. He never talked about it. Nobody really knows anything about it. We do know he was in a cave. We do know he left home at the age of eight. He was betrothed, engaged to a village girl when he was eight years old. And then, of course, she stays with her parents until they get married somewhere in their teens, early teens in the villages in those days. But he was betrothed at around eight, and then his mother had died, and his father remarried, and apparently his stepmother didn't feed him and treated him very poorly because she wanted her son to inherit the family farm and all that. So he just split. He ran away from home. And he was gone for many years. And then some uh, friend of the family or something recognized him at some ashram or somewhere uh, in the jungle or somewhere and went and told his father and his father brought him home. At which point he married the girl. Uh, They were now probably in their late teens. And uh, he married and had three children and pretty much stayed around the house until his youngest child, his daughter, went off to school when she was a teenager. Uh, but the funny thing is, they, tell, they say how people were, and he basically apparently stayed inside all the time in the house. He never went out much. But apparently people would keep coming to the village and coming to the door and ask to talk to him. Like, how did they know? You know but people were just coming like that. And... Uh, then after his daughter went off to live with uh, her uncle to go to school, Maharaji started wandering again. And, uh, yeah, and just things started to happen. You know, I mean, he became well-known. as, And he grew up in this one little village. And then uh, he ran away and he was known as Baba Lakshman Das. And then when he came home, uh, they didn't know about Lakshmandas. And then he left home again and went into the caves. And then he became known as Ninkaroli Baba. And it was only about 40 miles away. But nobody knew that that kid was that guy. He had so much shit going on. You know, you can't imagine. People just, everywhere he goes, there was another Leela. People would, he had have another name. People would know him by this name or know him by that name. But very little is really known about his gurus or anything like that. 
Uh, he, had, he made this cave and then he built a, a Hanuman Murti with his own hands out of cow dung and mud. And he worshipped that Hanumanji in the cave. And uh, in those days, uh, an old lady used to bring him one glass of milk and leave it just outside the door. Nobody knew he was there in this cave except this old lady. And then she died. And so milk wasn't coming, right? And he was starving. So he picked up uh, his chimta, which is used to like push the logs around the fire, you know, and he threatened Hanuman. He said, so you'll starve me, I'll beat you. So then the next day, milk outside. So stuff like that was happening. Hi. Hi. Oh, God. Hi. Is that, this is a question for Sharon. Um, my body takes every opportunity to fall asleep. You're lucky. Like, it's already happened like five times today. It happened this morning, and it also happened during the last chant. Um, just, I have certain issues that make it easier for me to fall asleep than other people, but I'm sure I'm not the only one. And um, I just wonder how, sitting up straight helps, but can you talk a little bit about how to push through that? Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, one of my teachers is a woman named Deepama. They say that when she was first practicing, she always would fall asleep. Um, but her teacher, who was also one of my teachers, this man named Manindra, used to say to her, this is good. You know, you, you, for so long you couldn't sleep. You couldn't rest. You couldn't settle. Now you'll sleep. And then she just came through it. But... <laughs> um, I wouldn't frame it necessarily perhaps so much as pushing through it as just playing with different balances. You know, um, for everybody, when I was talking about we deepen calm and concentration and tranquility and we're also strengthening energy and alertness and awareness, um, for everybody at different times, and some people have a strong tendency toward it anyway, maybe the kind of calm... Uh, concentrated side of things is really cooking much faster than the energy, alertness, interest side of things. And so then we fall into this state which classically is known as sinking mind. I call it the ooze. ooze. You just kind of ooze along. It's very peaceful, but it's not very sharp. Um, it's not a bad state. It's just out of balance. Um, in many ways, it's a good state because you are deepening come, but it would be better if you could, you know, have them sort of more equal. So, um, and not only do we all go through that at different times, some people have definite tendencies toward it. Like I have a definite tendency toward that. Um, so I would experience sleepiness and sitting much more than restlessness, for example. It's not that I'm never restless, but the proportion is really strong. Um, so I know at this point that some of my practice usually needs to be devoted just to the sheer wakefulness. So that might mean walking meditation instead of sitting sometimes. Like you said, sitting up is better than lying down, you know. Um, 
I mean, you can meditate perfectly well lying down, but if you're trying to pick up your energy, it's maybe not the best posture to choose. Um, sometimes it's really mechanical. Just open your eyes. Um, if you're doing something like being aware of the breath, one of the suggestions, which I, I kind of referred to earlier, is that you uh, actually try to use a word, like a mental note, like in-out, not just feel the breath. Like I was once... At the retreat center in, in Barry, um, I don't know what they do in the morning. They do something in the morning before breakfast, but after breakfast, <laughs> the latest possible moment you can get that sitting to start is 8.30. So my sitting started at 8.30. And uh, <laughs> there's instruction, and uh, then we sit, and then questions and answers at the end of that sitting, and then we go on and have a day. So it was my turn one day to lead the instruction, so... I got up in front of the room and closed my eyes and started feeling my breath. And right away, I fell into that ooze. I was just kind of oozing along. And then at one point, I had the thought, you know, maybe you should be noting and not just feeling the breath, but actually noting. So I started doing that, and it's like the clouds cleared enough for me to realize I was sitting in front of 100 people who have been waiting about 20 minutes for some instruction. And I just went kind of, whoop. <laughs> and so... I didn't say anything, and then at the end of the sitting, I rang the bell, and I said, well, this is what just happened. So I gave a big plug for mental noting. You know, so as long as you, you try whatever you do in a lighthearted spirit, it's not like a severe corrective, you know, for something wrong. You're just like, okay, I'm kind of out of whack. Let me try this, or let me try that, or whatever it might be. And some of it really is very mechanical. Like, there's some very funny list, uh, supposedly from the Buddha, about what to do with sleepiness. Um, and it's things like open your eyes, maybe stand up and meditate or do walking. Uh, watch your aim. Like if you're in effect saying just this one moment, just this one breath, that will pick up your energy. But if you're kind of here getting ready for the next 50, you're going to lose energy actually. So watch your aim. And it goes down the list. It says, pull your earlobes, which I never do. <laughs> the only time I do it is when I give this list. I don't know why. It's like I always forget it. And I also don't know why it's on the list. But pull your earlobes. And the last thing on the list is take a nap. So um, I always appreciated the fact it was on the list. And it's not the first thing on the list. As long as you just have that spirit. And I'll also just add... Uh, for me, and I think for a lot of people, if you do a more intricate practice, like loving-kindness practice, which is verbal, and those phrases mean something, it tends to be a much quicker feedback system. Like, I can be with the breath and ooze along for a good long time before I realize it. When I actually fall asleep, I realize it. Whereas what happens in the loving-kindness um, usually is that the phrases get garbled. So I remember in Burma once I was sitting there and I found myself repeating, may you be filled with suffering, may you be filled. And I go, no, like, may you be free of suffering. That's what I meant to say, you know, but it happens pretty quickly and that's good because I say, okay, you know, you're kind of out of whack. Let's, let's correct this, so. Did it make me happy? No. But it filled me with suffering in New York. I don't know what happened. It was I was immediately filled with suffering. Well, I'll tell you my favorite story. It's still my favorite story. Um, uh, 
Although, if anyone has a, another story, I'd be happy to hear it. <laughs> you can replace it and become my favorite story. I have a friend who's Swiss uh, who came to the Insight Meditation Society to sit. And um, because he's Swiss, English is literally like his fourth language. And his phrases were something like, may I be healthy and well, may I live with ease. And one day he just got into that, you know, spacey space of sinking mind. And he heard himself repeating, may I be wealthy in hell. <laughs> and may I live with eels. <laughs> And he just kept repeating it because English was his fourth language. And then he thought, that sounds a little weird, you know? And he kind of flipped back to Swiss German. He said, oh, that is a little weird, you know? So, but the idea is, you know, that uh, seeing it quickly is like a good thing, you know? It's, it's better to see it quickly than to sort of dream on for a good long time. I had a question about the chanting. I noticed at the end when everything was quiet that I could feel the harmonium, the sound of the harmonium coming out of my ears. And I, like, as if my ears were speakers or something. So I was wondering if there was a connection between the chanting and acoustics, or if there was any kind of historical phenomenon like that. Cause so was the harmonium actually still being played, or it was... You, you were hearing a sound that, that might matter. made me wait too long to ask the question. <laughs> I don't know. You say that again? He <laughs> doesn't remember. Yeah. He doesn't remember. I don't remember. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, I don't remember. All I know is that I was thinking, you know, I remember when I went to the Mayan pyramids and they clapped their hands in the middle of the square and you can hear the clap coming out of the top of the pyramids, okay, mm -hmm. and so I was thinking, I bet you there's some kind of connection between understanding that prior to the pyramids with chanting, mm -hmm. so I thought I'd see if there was. It's a good question. Yeah. I have no idea. Me either. <laughs> okay. Ram Ram. <laughs> Just asking you, since I don't know any Sanskrit or much about the, the history you're talking about, about the English translation of what we've been chanting and maybe what we're going to chant next. I know it's mostly the name of the guru, but the it starts with Om Namo. Good and Om Namo means uh, I bow. Namo, like Namaste. Namaste. Om Namo Guru Dev, beloved guru, divine guru, Nimkuroli Babaya. Swa, uh, namaha means again to bow. It's like a, a surrendering. A no, I, boom, bowing, that kind of thing. It's all, it's all bowing to the guru. Yeah. Uh, this is a question for Sharon. Um, I love the loving kindness practice, um, but I wonder if there are some instructions or the best way to proceed when you, in theory, can understand why those are good sentences, but they don't, they don't resonate right away necessarily. Uh, and it doesn't feel like it's an empty practice, but it's clearly meant to um, lead you to other places. And so I'm wondering 
it should just want to stick with that or just want to stick with the self or the friend or does it matter if you're feeling it in the moment or not? I don't feel very loving in the moment. <laughs> I'm repeating it, but I'm not feeling it. Uh, well, I have a personal prejudice, I guess you'd say, in that regard, in that um, back to the hindsight meditation society, <laughs> uh, because I feel I myself have done many hours of this practice feeling nothing, thinking nothing was happening, only to look back later and go, oh, look at that. Um, it isn't necessarily that way, and certainly many teachers would encourage you to kind of use your creative imagination and see if there's a way you can evoke a feeling, and that's fine. I just have my, you know, uh, thing. <laughs> and so uh, it sort of it came very early. Like, I learned meditation in January of 1971 in Bodh Gaya at this 10-day retreat. Das was there. He was like an old hand. He'd already done like three courses or something like that. Two. Two. <laughs> He's very sophisticated, you know. Very sophisticated. And uh, I heard like right at the end of that 10 days, which was really like a mindfulness retreat, uh, they did some loving kindness practice, but it was almost like a ceremonial way of saying goodbye, you know. And But it intrigued me. I thought, whoa, what's that? And... Uh, I learned that there was a way of doing it intensively. There was a way of doing it as kind of an immersion, but I never had a chance to do it. And then in 1976, we moved into the building, the Insight Meditation Society. We moved in on Valentine's Day, 1976. And there was a month before there was any uh, programming. So those of us who were there decided, well, we would sit ourselves. So I thought, okay, I've got a month. And I've always wanted to do loving-kindness practice. I know how, although I don't have a teacher here to guide me. So I did it. And um, the first week, I just did loving-kindness for myself, and I felt absolutely nothing. It was like a completely dreary week. And then at the end of the week, something happened to one of our friends in Boston. So several of us had to suddenly leave the retreat. So I was, getting, I was up in one of the bathrooms getting ready to go when I dropped this big jar of something. It just like went down on the ground and shattered and this stuff went everywhere. And I remember the very first thought that came up in my mind was, you are really a klutz, but I love you. And I thought, look at that. <laughs> you know, you could have given me anything in the course of the week and I could not have honestly said something was happening, but something was happening. And I think that part of it is that... Um, Love isn't necessarily a feeling. You know, we tend to define it in terms of an emotional track, and often it is, of course, but maybe it's something underneath that that's a worldview. It's a sense of connection. It's not necessarily emotional, and I think that limits us. Uh, one of the... It's almost like the primary thesis of, of my forthcoming book. Um is basically that. There was a line in this movie called Dan in Real Life. Anybody see that? It's not so new. Yeah, I was like 12 years old now, something like that. Uh, and the line is something like, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. And uh, I used that in, in the book, and one of my editors took great objection to it. And she said, of course it's a feeling. We know it's a feeling. We know it as a feeling. That's what we yearn for. May she be happy. Right. 
the editor. And so I sort of fudged it. I said, of course we think of love as a feeling, but let's consider it as an ability because um, it links up to an experience. I finally got to do intensive loving kindness practice in Burma, which was 1985. And I had one of those experiences that was extremely profound for me. Uh, and often I find those experiences are somewhat difficult to express in words. They don't sound like much in words, but it was quite transforming. And the experience was something like prior to that day, you know, or whatever, I had always considered love to be in the hands of another, to give to me or to take away from me. And it was sort of like the UPS person landing on my doorstep with a package. And if they changed their mind and said wrong address, I wouldn't have any love in my life because the package went away. And what changes, I realized it's inside me. It's a capacity, it's an ability within me. Other people may awaken it or threaten it or help nurture it or, you know, whatever, but it's actually existing inside me. Um, and, and that's kind of the point of it. And uh, of course, it's totally dreary if you go on forever with no feeling, you know, in the practice. And you might well make the decision, well, let me spark it up somehow. Or, uh, and we, we have a lot of flexibility, you know, changing the sequence or moving back to oneself or, or whatever it might be. But I, I would just be cautious about defining love as that very narrow, particular kind of feeling. Because I think it's so much vaster than that. Yeah. Um, hi. Um, here. Um, you both studied in India because I think at the time that's where you had to go to study. Um, I just wondered if you could comment on now with so many skilled teachers and meditation and yoga and chanting here, is it important, do you think, to kind of get out of the West and study in India? Is there a different experience? And just your comments would be appreciated. I don't think so. I don't, you know. I went to India specifically to be with Maharaji, who I had heard about from Ramdas. So, uh, but of course, I, I had been, I felt really called to India even before that. Um, but now I don't really think there is. Unless you feel really called to go and get dysentery, there's really no reason to go. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, because it, it adds a whole other level of, you say you're going to go, I'm going to go to this meditation course in some little village in India. Well, yeah, there's mosquitoes. You I can't drink the water. You know, there's a whole other level of stuff that you're going to have to deal with before you can really pay attention to your practice. So in a lot of ways, it, it's, it's not uh, that useful. On the other hand, sometimes it's useful to get out of your normal situation and deal with new things uh, and get a look at who you are in a different way. But, you know, so go to the Caribbean or something, you know. <laughs> what do you think? I agree. You know, it's like, uh, I don't know, you ask Krishnadas to tell one of my favorite Krishnadas stories um, about when you were on the train and it, the car was left behind. <laughs> you know, like, I think I'm going to have a retreat center in Massachusetts. You'll be a lot healthier. Um, <laughs> believe me. And, uh, but it, 
if you have, and it is sometimes amazing, even travel just in itself, because I think we, we tend to view hardships in a different way when we're traveling sometimes. Um, and it's great to get out of the States and, and just to, you know, feel the difference. But in terms of actual practice, I think it's, it's not at all necessary. It really yeah. isn't. So my Krishnadas story is his story about the train. And why were you going to tell that now? Because it's sort of like that being happen. in India yeah. and like... All right, so I was traveling alone in India, actually, at this point. I don't know where everybody was, but I was going from uh, Benares, and I was heading to Brindavan, where Maharaji was. And I went to the train station, and I had a, a third-class ticket, which is the bottom of the barrel. Wasn't even a sleeper. I would have to sit probably or stand all night long. Anyway, as I was walking to my car, I walked, I noticed there were a bunch of cars with the lights off further down the, the train. So I walked down there and I looked around and one of the cars, and they were all empty, and one of the cars, the door was open. So I kind of looked around and nobody was there. I got in the car really quick and I closed the door and locked it from the inside. I had the whole car to myself. I laid down, I relaxed, I took it easy. The train took off, I fell asleep. It was great. I woke up and I, as I was waking up, I, literally, I, I couldn't remember where I was. And there was absolute silence, right? I knew, then I remembered I'm on a train. And wait a minute, the train's not moving. And so I kind of got out and I opened the door to the car and it's, it was probably four in the morning and my car had been disconnected from the train. <laughs> and it was sitting in this tiny little village train station. And I think it was exactly the middle of nowhere. And there was nobody around. And it was cold, right? And the stars were so beautiful. And I just got out of the car, and the train car, and I sat down on the little bench on the platform, which was about 20 feet long, tiny little platform. And I was sitting there, and I go like, this is amazing. You know, nobody in the whole universe knows where I am. <laughs> nobody. I could just walk off into some village and get a job shoveling cow shit for the rest of my life, and no one would ever know where I am. It was an amazing feeling. It was uh, really extraordinary. Uh, just feeling, because this, you know, I came from America. People always know where you are. You're connected to people, blah, blah, blah. And here was like, and then I was, as I was sitting there, the, the sky began to lighten up a little bit in the distance, and, some birds started to fly around. And a guy walks, I could see a guy walking across the field nearby. And the day began, you know, little by little, and people started showing up. And a train pulled into the station, and I got on it. And here I am. Yeah, <laughs> hence we're here. <laughs> so for that kind of adventure, you can go to India. <laughs> What's that?
We only have five minutes, so she wants to know if she should put the microphone uh, you know, away. I don't believe in all these rules Kripalu puts out. <laughs> yeah. Anybody? Come on, we got six minutes. <laughs> Might have seven. <laughs> Hi, and thank you so much for teaching us. So when I first learned about these practices was maybe a decade ago, and I remember listening to tapes or, list, you know, I actually went to some classes and hearing about addiction and thinking, well, this has nothing to do with me. I'm just, I'm not an addict, and I didn't listen and then two things happened. One is I had children, and I grew very bored a lot of the time. And I got, iPhones were invented. And now I have a phone and children, and I look at it all the time. So I noticed I really have a true addiction. I am bored. I'm tired. They're bothering me. I want something. I feel ignored. I look, I look, I look, I look. And I'm just wondering... Um, you know, besides the maybe the morning meditation or the evening meditation, any advice for those moments? Or how in your lives now that there's phones, has it changed you? Or are you above the phone addiction <laughs> realm? So anything you have to say about living now in this moment with the, <laughs> the phone? No, no, no problem. What's on there? I mean, really, Nothing. mine's back in my room. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks. Bre breaking habits is a difficult thing to do. It's really, first of all, you have to really want to, you know. Sometimes when I have a bad habit, when I catch myself going, like for the iPhone or whatever it is, I'll, I'll do a few mantras first, and then I'll grab it. I won't stop myself, but I'll just slow myself down, and then it breaks that, you know, that completely unconscious grasping on the object. Little by little, it can help. It's really hard to break these things. And the other thing is to just throw the phone away, you know, and just do it. That's it. Or just put it upstairs when you're downstairs and, uh, and just really fiercely uh, confront that. But that's very hard because it comes from a different, coming from a different place, the need to kind of gap out. Uh, there's a name for it. In uh, psychological stuff, I forget what it's called, something. But there is an, there's actually a name for that. So it comes from an early ability of substituting a, one object for another and stuff like that, you know. But um, mindfulness, you know, bring some mindfulness to it. Notice, here I go again, and then now I'm judging myself, and now all the stuff that goes on. But bring some awareness to it, you know. And then just... Step on the phone, that's so crush it. Oh, 
Yeah. 